Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, I sit down with Per Byland, and I don't usually do this, but I want to read his bio. This was a real treat for me, and maybe if you've listened to this for some time, this podcast, you might understand why when you hear this. Per Byland is a PhD and a senior fellow of the Mises Institute, an associate professor of entrepreneurship, and Johnny D. Pope chair in the School of Entrepreneurship in the Spears School of Business at Oklahoma State University, and an associate fellow of the Ratio Institute. Institute in Stockholm. He has pre previously held faculty positions at Baylor University and the University of Missouri. Dr. Byland has published research in top journals in both entrepreneurship and management, as well in both the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics and the Review of Austrian Economics. He is the author of three full-length books, How to Think About the Economy, A Primer, the Seen, the Unseen, and the Unrealized, How Regulations Affect Our Everyday Lives, and The Problem of Production, A New Theory of the Firm. And then it goes on, his bio continues on in all the different articles and essays that he's edited and put out. This was a real treat for me to sit down with an, uh, an economist who comes from the Austrian School of Economics, which to me, after doing a bunch of reading over the years, is, is the proper framework to think about the economy and economics. So the reason I wanted to share this with you is I recently read his book. It's really short. I think it's under 200 pages called How to Think About the Economy. And it gave me new context for how to understand the way the world works. It was really profound. And he broke down, I would say, multiple complex books that I've read over the years into a really nice summary. And it talks about money, pricing mechanisms, purchasing power, the, you know, the boom and bust cycles that we currently live in. If you want to have a good, firm understanding of the economy, I'd highly encourage you to check out this book. And if you just Google up how to think about the economy, or sorry, the, the book is called, um, how to, yes, how to think about the economy. If you just Google that up, his name is Per Byland, B-Y-L-U-N-D. You can get a free copy of the book. It's just a PDF that he has released for free. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes of this particular episode as well so that you have it. But that's who we're sitting down to have a chat with on this um, episode of the podcast. And if you are listening to this, you should know that on Saturday, February 11th, it's the next Your Life, Your Terms event. And if you haven't registered for that yet, if you're a member, you can just go to the member site and register or email the team if you are not a Rockstar Inner Circle member, we do have some seats reserved for people who are not part of the membership. You can go to Your Life, Your Terms event to see all the different things that we're doing on Saturday, February 11th, and you can grab a ticket there. While those tickets are available, the vast majority of tickets are saved for members. So if you want to go to yourlifeyourtermsevent.com, you'll see what we're doing on Saturday, February 11th. And of course, one of the highlights for me, purpose, uh, uh, me personally and maybe selfishly is the economic update that we share where we talk about all all the weird and wonderful things that we're seeing in the economy and how we can prepare for that for ourselves and our families and how we can best structure our finances to kind of navigate through that. So that's what's going on Saturday, February 11th. You can go to yourlifeyourtermsevent.com to check out all the details and grab a ticket. That's it for this intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Caradza. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey, everyone. So we are live with Per Byland. Am I saying your last name properly? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What, what is the background of the last name? Well, I mean, I'm from Sweden, so both of my names, unfortunately, are very Scandinavian. So, Why unfortunately? They're great. Yeah, but not if you are in other countries and you meet people and you introduce yourself and you, I have to spell my names every day, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I could see your first name. If I heard it just like over the phone, you were talking to me and you said pear, I might think pear, like the fruit pear or right. something like that. So, okay. I see your challenge. I get it. I get it. Hey, listen, I want to thank you for doing this pair. You wrote a book, how to think about the economy that probably summarized, uh, I don't know how many different books I've read all into one nice condensed introduction to economics. And, and I really wanted to, I just wanted to jump into this and I wanted to ask you, can, can we can, actually, you know what, let me take a step back before I ask you about Austrian economics. Can you just give everyone a little bit about your background? 
who are you and how did you get to the point that you were writing this book? Just for some context, please. That would be helpful. Okay. That's a lot of context though. Cause I mean, right now I'm an associate professor of entrepreneurship at Oklahoma state university. And this is, uh, I guess it's my third career on three continents. So I've been a little bit all over the place, but I mean, my, my degree though is in economics. So while studying mainstream economics, I studied Austrian economics on the side because I've, I've always sort of been interested in the market and how it works, but studying economics, you don't really get that. You get a lot of math, but you don't get really the intuition. So studying the Austrians, both old and new, I, I, I learned a lot about the intuition and everything like that. And then getting into entrepreneurship where I do research and teaching now, it's pretty clear that mainstream economics, they don't really have anything to say at all because there's no entrepreneurship in economics. But for the Austrians, the market is a process and it's an entrepreneurially driven process. And it makes a whole lot more sense because you have innovation, you have creative thinking, you have production and things like that. It's very core. And that's what I try to teach my students too, that what when they're starting a business, what they need to do is figure out how to serve people to the best degree possible. And that's how they can get paid as much as possible. So it's really about this, this exchange over time in the sense that they're producing this business and producing some good or service, not for themselves, but for someone else. And the better they satisfy others, the better they can satisfy themselves with profits and, and growing the business and, and so forth. And in all this, I mean, I, I think maybe I'm old fashioned or something, but as a professor, yeah, I, I, I do a lot of research because I'm at one, at one of those big research universities. So I have to publish research. No one reads research. <laughs> and maybe a, couple, maybe a couple of my colleagues at other universities read it because they need to cite it or something like that. But no one really reads it. And most people can't read it either because it's just a lot of, well, fancy terms and, and a lot of math and stuff like that. And my teaching, sure, that's much easier for students at all levels. But I think my, my job as an academic and a professor is also to spread what I've learned to the rest of everybody to society and make society better. So be sort of public intellectual, if you will. Right. And, and so I, I write a lot of columns. I have had a column for years at entrepreneur magazine, for instance, where I try to sort of condense economic truths uh, and make them actionable for entrepreneurs. Um, I've written columns on all kinds of websites all over the place. I I've had several blogs and things like that, just to try to, to get the message out. Cause there's so much that we know that most people don't know. And I think for entrepreneurs in general, it's really about figuring out how to avoid obvious mistakes. I mean, in retrospect, they're obvious. And from, from my perspective, studying like hundreds of years of theorizing and so forth on entrepreneurship, they're also obvious, but most entrepreneurs still make the same mistakes. So I think, yes, educating my students, sure, that's going to make them better to the extent they listen, which is a varying degree, I guess. Uh, and, and research, I mean, research is just taking tiny steps forward and filling in some gaps, but it's, it, it's going to make a difference in the long term. But how can I make the world better? Well, it's spreading what I know about the mistakes that people should not be making to everybody else. And part of that was, of course, teaching everybody how the economy works. How can we understand the economy? And how should we and, think about it? Because yeah, so how would you answer that first question to me if someone asked you? And I know in your book you 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 use such a simple example that really was profound for me, with Beth, Adam, and Charlie and apples, milk, and pears. I'm sure you know the example because you wrote it. But but you know, are you able to articulate? I guess in a, in, a, in a few sentences, or how would you articulate it? Like, what is the economy for someone who's trying to think of this? Who maybe is not hasn't studied economics. How would you answer that? What What is the economy? Well, in a sense, it's it's just uh, the other side of the society coin in a sense, right? That it's, it's really all of us just acting and interacting, but it's all of us acting and interacting in an economizing way. So we're trying to make our lives as good as possible for well, for ourselves and for everybody around us too. And that's why we act in general, but it's also how we make choices of what to produce and what to buy and everything like that. So it's, it's really, the, there's, there are several answers to the question, right? One is, 
Well, it's it's our trying to make our lives as as good as possible, making ourselves better off. The other is well, it's production, and that's more sort of a formalistic answer. But production is how we uh, gain the ability to satisfy our wants. So, but the question then is, production of what, and production at what time, using what resources? Those are the questions that economists try to answer and try to figure out because the market has all these different ideas of different people pursuing different ends, and still they seem to come together in some sense. And resources tend to shift almost automatically towards where they do most good if they're just let let be. And how does that happen? I mean, that's, that's something that, that economists try to understand and that is important for most of us to understand too, because that's what the economy sort of does. It's, it's not an engine or a machine that spits out certain outputs, but it's rather a method or a process in which we're continuously discovering better ways of, of serving one another in a sense and, and, and serving ourselves uh, as part of the process. And, and I, I guess the example that you use in the book, you used, you referenced someone, I can't remember who originally used this example of Paris and how Paris was able to feed itself and how there is no centrally planned organization that is telling what shopkeepers to sell bread and which shopkeepers to sell vegetables or what square to sell these items in. But Paris as a large city is able to feed itself through people who are just acting to serve, I guess, their best interests and through other people on the other side of a transaction, economizing or making choice to, choices to fulfill their wants and needs and you know, sacrificing some choices and making others. And it's that interaction of everybody acting to serve their highest and highest interests that is the economy. And it kind of naturally, it, it works because everybody's trying to serve their best interests. And sometimes that is offering value to others. Sometimes that is using what purchasing power you have to, to acquire something that you want or need in that moment. And it's that interaction of those goods and services that is the economy. Am I butchering that too badly? No, I think that's good. I mean, the economy is what comes out of all of our actions in a sense, right? <clears throat> it is our actions and it's also what comes out of it. And very often we take much of the economy for granted. So that's why I used the example of Paris. How does Paris get fed? Uh, and it's, it, I, think, I think originally it was Fre Frederick Bastiat, the, the uh, 19th century French economist, who asked the question. But others have asked similar questions. And we don't think about it. It's, it's so obvious if you're living in Paris or outside of Paris, it's so obvious that, yeah, of course, they're not starving to death. But then you think about it, wait a minute. How come? Why are they not starving to death? <laughs> yeah, why are they not starving? Because they're, they're not... They're not producing any food at all, all the people in Paris, none whatsoever. I mean, maybe someone is growing tomatoes in the backyard or whatever, but not enough for to sustain the population. No one said to anyone that you need to produce this type of food and deliver it on this day to this square and sell it at this price so that we can get enough food for whatever party a year from now, right? And still every day people in Paris can go to market square somewhere and buy all these different types of goods at different prices and go to another square and buy other goods. And of course they come from somewhere. And where do they, they come from? Well, they come from all kinds of farmers all over the place who have a year before figured that, you know what, I'm going to grow tomatoes or wheat or whatever on, on my land, because I think a year from now, I'm going to be able to sell it to people in Paris for a price that is high enough that it will cover my cost and it will will pay for a good a good standard of living for me and my family right and they're all thinking this and they're delivering goods when when they can when they imagined and no one in paris has to starve not single day will they they be out of food and there's nothing no food to get it's so when you think about it it's, like it's pretty fantastic yeah right yeah and it's, it's amazing but we're so used to it, so we don't even reflect on it. And then you think, well, very often we we see what's going on. And we go, oh, that's that's stupid, or why is he throwing away these tomatoes or whatever, right? And that's inefficient. Well, okay, but how would you plan the whole thing so that you don't get this little inefficiency, that you don't have to throw these tomatoes away or whatever it is? Well, you can't really plan that. 
no one can know what people want to buy at a certain date in the future. That's impossible. But by having this very decentralized a distributed system of all these farmers and all these people transporting food and all these people choosing which square to sell their food at and what day and everything like that and how many people to involve in the process. Because of this, we have a plethora of goods available practically always at pretty affordable prices too. So something is sort of working this process and making this happen and and that's what economists have traditionally tried to understand. Where the heck does this come from? And how does it actually work? And how does tampering with it change things? I've never, until reading your book, I never really thought about a farmer as the entrepreneur who is taking the risk of planting a certain crop. Their reward, if they've guessed properly, is profits. Their punishment, if they've guessed incorrectly, is losses. And I've never really thought, I've always just thought, oh, that's a farmer. I've never really thought of the farmer as an entrepreneur. And then you made me think through reading your book, like, oh my gosh, everyone in one way, shape or form is an entrepreneur in some capacity in this social structure that we all have and everything that we are offering the market, whether it's our skills, if we're in the service industry, is us offering value to the economy. The economy then reflects back to us in purchasing power, and I'm going to get to questions about money in a second, but in, in a, some sort of purchasing power um, in relation to the value that we offer it, you know, and that purchasing power could be in, you know, in money, of course, but it could be in, in other, in, in other goods or services, but I never really thought of it that way. So thank you for kind of like breaking that out. I, I wanted to ask you when you understand the economy in this way, that it's a bunch of people and it's human actions all intertwined together. How do you think, we currently talk about the economy and why is that a little um, probably frustrating to you or incorrect or inaccurate? Because in the past, I would think about the economy as a GDP number. I would just think like, oh, like what's the GDP of the economy this year? Is it is it more or less? And like that, that number is the economy. So if I looked at the American GDP or the Canadian GDP or the Swedish GDP, to me in my mind, I was like, oh, that's the economy. Why is that like an, in your view? And I'm, I don't mean to put words in your mouth either, but why is that like an incorrect or weird way to look at the economy? Well, I mean, as, as human beings, we want to plan, we want to predict, we want to get rid of the uncertainty, right? So, so it's not strange that we turn to different kind of metrics and and attempts at measuring things, and that's that's really what GDP is. So, economists have traditionally understood that. Well, see, we people have different wealth individually, but different countries are not they're they're different and it's not really the resources they have they if they have a lot of wood or a lot of iron that doesn't really determine how wealthy the society is so it's something else right i mean even adam smith in his, his famous work it's in the title is an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations right he's trying to figure out where why are some countries rich and others are not and why do they vary a little bit and it has nothing to do really with the resources so Obviously, then you need some way of distinguishing between them too. How 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 much richer is UK than Portugal or whatever? And and then you need a metric to figure out. Okay, is the economy growing? Is it getting better? Or is it getting worse? And by how much? Because then then you can also uh, backtrack and you can evaluate how you've say you've regulate made different types of regulations or different types of investments how does that affect the economy overall so having a, a metric makes sense and the gdp is an attempt to capture the size of the economy in terms of production it's it's not a very good metric so it doesn't really capture the economy in in that sense but it is one that is is generally used and and used by well by states and 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 state bureaucracies all over the world and of course, for political purposes too, because it gets corrupted when it's also used. So it's 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 one attempt at at measuring the size of the economy and therefore how much it grows every year or not. Um, it's not a very good one. But then when it's used in politics, I mean, in, in China, for instance, they have GDP targeting at every political level. So what does that mean? Well, it means that every political office, pretty much, they have. A requirement to maximize GDP. Why? Well, because then it looks like the economy is, is growing a whole lot. The problem with GDP is that as a statistical measure, it's 
It's imperfect to say the least, and it measures cost more than it measures value produced. Well, that means that if you're producing something and you're using a ton of resources and it's really costly, that boosts GDP. So if the government spends on all kinds of wasteful crap, pretty much, GDP goes up. And that's sort of what we're seeing in China, unfortunately, that, that they're spending on all this stuff. And, and the more it breaks down, the better it is, because then they have to fix it. And that's also GDP boosting, right? So because of this, uh, these incentives in politics, GDP has become an even worse metric because they're playing that game too, trying to boost the statistic rather than actually make people better off. Because what economists traditionally have talked about is, well, what is wealth for the society overall, the standard of living, and how can we make that as high as possible over time so that people's wants are satisfied, so that people lead good lives, right? That's That's obviously a good thing. So how, how can we have, have that happen? And how, what, what is stopping some countries from, from catching up with others and, and things like that, right? Where, what, why are some countries rich? Um, and me, having some sort of measure helps then, but it's, it's not helpful when the, the metric is imperfect and also uh, is exploited for political purposes, as is the case today. So there are other measures too, of course, but, but none of them are really good. And the issue there is that it's not really the the monetary costs of producing something or the price uh, at which goods are sold that measures the value of them. Or right? the standard of living. <clears throat> right. Or the standard of living. So you can't really say that just because you bought a lot of stuff for a lot of money, that doesn't mean that your standard of living is higher than someone who bought a lot of stuff for less money. Right? It might be the other way around that, that that other guy, of course, he has might have more money left over, so he can he can buy more stuff after the fact. But it could also be the case that he was able to satisfy wants that were much, much, much more important to him than the ones that you satisfied. So it's not really about um, buying or consuming the goods; it's about what the, what value, what satisfaction you get out of it, and that's. This immeasurable. You can't really measure yeah. that at all. Okay. So if that's the case, this is fascinating to me. So if that's the case, can GDP in a cur our current economic system, in your opinion, ever really be used to 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 explain the standard of living of a, of the population? Because in in my interpretation of the way I look at the 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 monetary system now, we always need a higher and higher GDP because. We have a money system that requires more and more credit in the system to, to continue. So we're always going to need a higher and higher GDP. But the way I look at that now is that higher and higher GDP is just measuring how many dollars are in the system and how many that the, the, the more dollars is actually making them worth less and less. And it's just giving me garbage information. So, right. so like yeah. I, I look at the GDP now much differently than I did a year or two ago where I'm like, well, this GDP number to me doesn't, I, I, as an entrepreneur, I, I, I on the, the economic signal from this GDP number is like distorted. I, I don't know what to, to do with it. When you hear me say that, what comes to mind for you? Well, I mean, first I would just nod in agreement. Okay. <laughs> so okay. The, the issue here, I think is that a, a, a metric of these, the, the economy, nothing in the economy is actually very objective and clear. So any metric will be faulty in some sense, but it can still, it can still be useful if you use it the same way year after year, because then you can at least see the difference, right? Mm -hmm. So if you measure something and it's not, it's not accurate, but it's, it's wrong in a certain way. And then you measure it the next time and it's wrong in the same way, at least you can see if things are okay, got it. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. Got it. So over time, it's, it's not that stupid. Uh, the problem of course, is that they're playing the game and trying to boost the statistic and, 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 and figure out a way to increase GDP, even though the economy is not higher and things like that. So, so it's not reliable in that sense. And of course they're changing also how they're calculating GDP and, and what is included in it and things like that. So that also screws things up. And it's at the same time, as you mentioned, money is not um, 
I mean, it's tampered with every day, pretty much through central central banking. That since the money itself, which is uh, the unit we use for measuring these things, that unit is manipulated daily. Well, then, then what the heck are we measuring? So we're we're measuring something where we're changing how we measure it every year, and the unit is different every year too. I mean, th- then it doesn't tell us much at all. And I think that that is that is exactly the issue with with the GDP today that it doesn't tell us a whole lot. It it of course tells us something when you say that a country has fifty thousand dollars of GDP per capita, and another country has only five hundred dollars. Yeah, it's gonna. It's going to be obvious to anyone looking at it that yeah, the former country is much richer and, and better off than the other one. But it doesn't say that it's 10 times or 100 times better off. That's not, that doesn't follow. So it, it, it captures something, but we don't really know what. And that's, that's terrible for, for, for research and science, because if, if science is not uh, accurate and, 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 and specific enough, it's, it's just wrong. So can we fix some of the economic signal with with a, what would be the right word, like a commodity-based money? Does that help? And is that the biggest difference between Austrian economics and Keynesian economics? Could we, could we well, fix it's, some it's of that signaling? <clears throat> yeah, it's a, it's a big difference. Um, I what mean, would be the pros of using a commodity-based money, something a good that exists in the economy in and of itself as money instead of the government injecting the money into the economy. Is, yeah, the, the, what, is there a big negative to that? Yeah, there is. Because money is the, sort of a measuring rod for a lot of things. So when, when you as an entrepreneur, you invest in, oh, I'm going to start this business because I think that I can produce certain certain value in the future, which means really that you think that, well, your customers are going to value the product so much that they're willing to pay this price, whatever it is. And you're going to sell X number of, of the good. <clears throat> and then based off of that, you're going to make the decision, yeah, I'm going to start the business because the cost is only this much. So it's very likely I'm going to have something in between the profits, right? Well, if they're changing the value of the money, the actual unit you're using between now and when you're selling the goods, you have no freaking clue. There, there's no way you can know if you actually created any value. If you use the resources in a good way, if it was actually productive or if it was wasteful, there's no way you can know this. So you need some some reliable uh, unit, which is which is money. It doesn't have to be stable. It doesn't have to be fixed, but it can't be manipulated constantly, right? So uh, in a, in a commodity money uh, regime, as you, you mentioned, it's simply one of the goods in the market that is that is the money. It, because it's used uh, as an intermediary in exchange. So people are selling, most of us are selling our labor, others are selling goods and whatnot else, and they're all selling it for the same good, a gold coin or whatever it is, right? And since they're all selling it for that, and they, because they, they know that they can use the gold coin or whatever good they get to buy other stuff. Otherwise you would have to find, okay, so I'm I have my labor to sell, I need eggs for breakfast tomorrow. They need someone find someone who will be willing and able to trade you those eggs for your labor. Well, it's going to be really hard. (laughs) It's much easier to sell your labor to some employer somewhere. And he or she pays you in a certain good that you know, you can use to buy whatever as a, as a medium of exchange. Right. And if, if that medium, that good, it doesn't shoot up in terms of quantity or down or anything. It doesn't change a whole lot and very fast. And it has a, a backup too. So so gold is is was I mean it was basically the world currency for quite a while. And it's it, it it was world world currency for a reason because it's really hard to dig out of the ground and because it has other uses too, both in industrial uses and for jewelry and things like that. Right. So if there was a lot of gold in the market suddenly because they've dug up, dug up out of the ground, or maybe uh, there was another ship coming from South America to Spain or whatever like that, then you would see a lot of people say, well, coins are now so plentiful that I'm going to, I'm going to produce more jewelry from these coins. So, so there's going to be less coins available. So the, the, the value of it in exchange is going to stabilize much quicker. 
right? The the money we have today, it, it doesn't it isn't backed by anything, right? It's the dollar is well, it's the dollar because the government says it's the dollar. It doesn't mean anything. It usually it's not even paper or a metal, because nowadays we use cards and we use transfers and whatever else. It's just ones and zeros on a hard drive. So can there can they manipulate how many dollars are available? Yeah, of course. They basically hit enter on a on a keyboard somewhere, and then suddenly, oh, another trillion, right? And of course, that's going to affect how people uh, make choices and how they can calculate in the economy. So you, when when you calculate this, it's hard enough as it is as an entrepreneur to figure out: Am I actually producing value for these customers in the future? Am I producing enough for them to buy it from me? <clears throat> and at what price? I mean, that's really hard to figure out. But then it's to say. Well, you know what? That unit you're using could mean anything at that point. Well, I would definitely not start a business. I mean, <laughs> how can well, I and, 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 right? and what's happening in Canada is that because we don't have pure economic signal and because there's economic distortion through the creation of money at the will of the government or the central bank or whoever you want to talk to as behind all of that, you get a situation here in this country where rental properties, as I was sharing earlier, and, and something we do in this business have become the savings account. People who are able to accumulate some purchasing power play very defensive because they don't know what to do with their value. So in, instead of perhaps saving up capital to start a new business to get a reward, they play defensive by assets like income properties that becomes their savings and to no fault of their own, because you would say over the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, that has proven to be the right thing to do. And you get an economy where instead of the productive capacity of the economy going into things like innovation or technology advancement or new energy sources, you get a bunch of people like myself who plow their money into income properties as a defensive move to fight off the injection of new money from the government or central bank who is devaluing the existing dollars. And you get an economy that's very distorted. And then the media reports it as like, oh, investors are buying all the real estate. And it's the investors who are causing property prices to go up. And it's the investors who are, you know, here we have a bit of a housing crisis in the Toronto area. Our population's exploding here. And, uh, you know, investors are buying the properties. There's not enough housing. And you end up arguing at the municipal government level about incorrect things because the economic signal is giving you incorrect data. You know, it's not investors to me who are causing the housing problem. It's the economic signaling that is so malformed, it's forcing these behaviors. And so once you understand it, and again, your book just helped me further deepen my understanding, you start to look around and you go, oh my gosh, we're fighting all the wrong battles. We're arguing over all the wrong things. Like, And you can't blame some of these people because they don't understand economics. And Pear, that's why everybody needs to read your freaking book. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, so that's why I wrote it. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, you're absolutely correct, and I think that's that's also why people flee into the stock markets, right? Because because the the stock market rides totally. uh, the new money yeah. being created. It, it ends up in Wall Street most uh, mostly, right? So if you just invest in whatever index funds, what have you, so you just put all the money in there, and then maybe you can float with. Uh, with the stock market, which is usually ahead a little bit, right? And and that's the that's the problem with an, any inflationary economy, that you get more of this sort of financialization than you get of actual production. So how how okay? So I have a question for you then. In your study of economics and understanding of economics, is it feasible for a good to become a naturally emergent money? Like this is because to me, that's so foreign. Like I, now I understand the I think I know what the answer is going to be. But, you know, for years, I just assumed, well, the government tells us what the money is. And I know it's backed by something. Don't really know what it's backed by, but I assume it's backed by something. But in 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 your explanation of economics, money just naturally emerges. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. And and this is something, I mean, I don't do a whole lot of new stuff in the book. I summarize what others have done. So Carl uh, Menger, the, the founder of the Austrian school, uh, he wrote an essay back in 1890 something, 92 maybe, uh, on where money comes from. And that's still the, the, the go-to explanation because it explains logically and probably historically uh, where money comes from. And all you need to do is just hypothesize that you're in a barter society before there was money. 
So then, then you have the problem there with my trying to trade my my labor for someone who can provide me with my breakfast eggs. And how am I going to find that guy? And am I going to find that guy every day? And probably not. <clears throat> and even if I do, what if I need a new car? How much labor will I need to provide the dealership in order to, well, why would they need my labor? How many economics lectures can I give them to get a car? I mean, they're not interested. They, they would probably not even buy one, right? <laughs> and But even if they would, int would be interested, I would have to lecture them for years and they would be go grow tired of me after <laughs> yeah. quite a while. After a while, so they might so, actually just give you a car to get rid of you, Per. You never know. Might be a good strategy. Well, I see. Yeah, that might actually work. You're right. <laughs> but but the issue, of course, is how can I find someone who wants what I have to offer and offers what I want, and we can also agree on the terms. That's almost impossible. So barter society is just. It's not very feasible and it's going to stay poor because who can engage in long-term production and things like that when, when you don't have any good until in the future, because there's no credit because credit needs to be in kind just in terms of eggs and tomatoes and whatever. That's, that's just not doable. <clears throat> so, well, what, what's going to happen? Well, people will, aren't stupid. So if I want those eggs and that guy does not want economics lectures, then I can figure out, well, that guy might want something else. So maybe he wants butter or something. And I happen to know that the farmer, he could use an economics lecture. So maybe I can exchange my economics lecture for butter. I don't want butter. I don't need butter. I have no use for butter whatsoever, but I can use it in trade, right? So I, I, I sell what I have for something that I think that I can use for something else. So it becomes a medium of exchange with the guy with the eggs. So... In this, in this case, then, butter is the more saleable good. Because I can't sell my lectures, but I can sell the butter that I can get from my lectures. And of course, people start to realize this, and they start to trade this, this way indirectly. And the more saleable good they sell whatever they're producing for, the more choices they have, the more alternatives they have, the more options they have, right? Because if I, if I have, find something that a lot of people would like, then I'm better off than if I only have butter and lectures. So I will choose the more saleable good every time I sell, and so will everybody else. So when when this process goes on and people will choose the more and more saleable good as soon as they realize what it is, right? Well, as soon as they learn, some goods will be the go-to for most people when they sell whatever they produce. <clears throat> and those goods are are the are commonly used then as media of exchange. And that's what defines the money. And then, of course, it, it takes a life of its own in the sense it becomes valuable because people use it in exchange, not only because it's a good itself. Because most people suddenly, they trade for this thing, whatever it is that most people will accept in trade. And they will probably accept it in trade because they can use it in trade. So it, it becomes a different type of good. And we've seen historically that societies have used different things from seashells to cattle to whatever. Uh, there are some islands in the Pacific, I think, where they use really, really big flat rocks. Well, I mean, all kinds of weird stuff. And But the, the thing is that it's money because everybody sees it as money. Everyone will accept it uh, in exchange for the actual stuff that they're offering because they realize that they can use it themselves when they buy stuff. And that's the whole whole point and the whole function of money. And of course, the, the, the world pretty much uh, settled on gold and silver as, as standard currencies. And different countries called it different things and used different measures and weights and stuff like that, right? So, so the pound sterling was, well, it was in silver, and then the franc was a whatever weight. And, but it's, since they were all weights of the same um, metal, there was no fluctuating exchange rates or anything. It was basically just the same currency, it was just different weights of it, right? Uh, so trade was pretty easy. There was no uncertainty trading across borders, anything like that either. So can a, like you asked, can a good become a money? I mean, yeah, it, it was, and it always was. And then it's been been uh, uh, taken over and monopolized and, and, and manipulated by governments. Because of course, if, if you already have a money economy, well, then usually the king or whoever would realize that, you know what, if I can control this, 
I can offer a stamp of approval or, or uh, guarantee the quality or whatever. And I can mm-hmm. stamp my head on the coins as a, as a proof that this is guaranteed. <clears throat> and then I can take taxes in this thing instead of in kind. So I don't get all these tomatoes and cattle and stuff. I just get the gold coins and then I buy whatever I want in the marketplace instead. Then they realize that, well, you know what? All these coins, they pass through my treasury. So if I need more, why don't I just take a little piece off of each coin? No one is going to notice. And I'm going to make a few more coins. And then someone would notice, well, why did, what if I just take the gold and I mix it with something else? No one is going to notice. So the, the actual amount of gold in a coin is going to be less than before. And then my purchasing power increases. Right. So, so already there, that we have the, the origin of inflation in the sense, right. That they're creating a whole lot more money because they want to expand their own purchasing power. It seems like a historical. Yeah. And it seems like such a historical pattern that, you know, the world will go through different societies or different civilizations with a hard form of money. It's co-opted or hijacked in some capacity by some governing power that then inflates to some level of worthlessness. (laughs) There's some sort of reset back to a commodity-based money and we begin again, you know, and it's just this never ending cycle. And depending where you are born in history, you live with the consequences, good or bad of wherever you are in that up and down cycle. Of, of money. I have a question for you then. What is there a negative that I'm not thinking of with a commodity-based or naturally emerging money versus a government-issued money? Like, is there something that is just highly negative to something um, naturally emerging as, as money? We can use a gold coin as, as an example. Is, is there a negative to a commodity-based money that comes to mind for you? Well, I mean, there, there can be. I mean, there can be corruption by private banks and private companies too. So, okay. Okay. Outside like, of the outside of flat out corruption is I get I guess where I'm coming at from this is sometimes people will argue with me and saying, well, Tom, if you have something that's very limited in its, you know, it, it has a, a level of scarcity to it. And if that's the commodity-based money, we're going to have deflation or deflationary pressures in an economy. And then I think, well, that means my savings is going up in value and goods and services around me are going down in value. My money is becoming worth more um, over time. I look at that as a positive. Then the then pair, the next thing I get back is, well, if that's the case, why would anybody start a business? They'll just hoard money. And then my response to that is, well, not only will they start a business, they'll have to produce something of real value because it has to be of real economic value for people who have a good form of money to separate themselves of, from that money, which means the economy then naturally produces very high quality buildings and products and clothing. Is my, is my line of thinking here off? What, what comes to mind for you there? No, I'm with you totally. Um, that, that's exactly the thing. I think a lot of people have gotten entrepreneurship wrong, <clears throat> thinking that entrepreneurs are there to meet demand. That's how, how people usually express it, saying that, well, all they need to do is figure out what people want and then provide it. That's not how it works. It's exactly the other way around. So when you start a business, well, you, you have an idea of what you want to provide to people, but whether they will like it or not, it doesn't matter if they like it right now, because you don't have it there right now. They will need to like it when you have it available for them. And then they will have to like it more than what anybody else is offering, right? So you will need to produce something that is of value, that is more valuable to them than the money they have in their pockets and to all the alternatives that they have, the alternative uses for their money. And that's that's the structure of entrepreneurship, right? You produce that of value. And if, if you do, then you're rewarded with profits. And if you fail, then you suffer losses, right? It, they don't respond to demand. Demand is discovered after you have already produced. And it, it, this is easy to see if you think of, of um, any innovative product or, or service that, well, consumers have never seen it before. Like the so, iPod. Remember the iPod? When it first right. came out, the iPod? Nobody, no one even knew what that thing was. 
Exactly. And and very often people don't see the value. So the entrepreneur will need to tell a story. The entrepreneur will need to provide use cases. And they usually have like flashy images and maybe a little movie and commercials and whatnot else to show that this is how it can be used to make your life better, right? So educating the consumers on how to use the product because consumers don't get it. And there are plenty of, of, of fantastic products, say, that consumers just shunned because they didn't quite get it or it was usually we say that it was too early or something well it wasn't Mm -hmm. necessarily too early it doesn't have anything to do with time it was just improper good for the consumers at that point in time given what the consumers knew and the communication from the business right it doesn't have to be something new it doesn't have to be very useful either i mean remember uh, examples like the pet rock Right. It's a freaking rock in a box. <laughs> yeah, with right. googly eyes. <laughs> right. And what, what is the value of that? Well, people bought it and they bought it because it was a fun thing. I mean, yeah, it was a joke, right? But people thought it was a fun joke and they thought it was worth more than the money they paid for it. So it was a success. And it wasn't tricking them into, into believing that the rock was a pet. Nobody believed the rock was a pet. <laughs> it, was, it was a it was a fun thing, and they thought that that was getting a joke out of it, or or just giving it to your mom or something like that, and just see the look at her face, or what what not else, whatever it is, right? That is value to you, and it's worth the dollars you paid for it. But who the heck could have known? No one could have known. It was freaking rock, but right? yeah. but it did create value. So entrepreneurs will always focus, or should always, that's one of the mistakes that, that I try to teach my students, that don't focus on what you think should be useful, focus on what others will value when they see it. How does this make a difference in their lives? Not what will you want to buy, because you're not, you're not producing it for yourself. Mm-hmm. You're producing it for them, right? That was my evolution of going, when I worked in the corporate world, I was starting little side hustle type businesses. And I was always starting something that I thought I wanted and I thought was brilliant. And I really struggled selling it. And then I remember I had one mentor who said, you know, I was already investing in real estate and rental properties. And they said, there's already a river of money going in this direction. You just have to step into the middle of that river of money. That's already those transactions that already are happening. And you'll likely be able to, you know, offer something to those people who are already valuing this type of thing. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm trying to reinvent the wheel over here. Um, Maybe I can offer something that they will value. That's a little different, but is an area where things are already happening and just change my own thinking on kind of like entrepreneurship. And, and 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 the whole thing yeah and very um, often it's it's really about just communicating something yeah so when, when we think of tablets most people will think of the ipad was the ipad the first tablet and i don't mean tablets like in in ancient egypt or anything but tablets with technology with touch that's screens right yeah like, yeah no, remember the palm not. pilot yeah the palm pilot yeah, the, the i forgot palm about the palm pilot there. yeah you, you had yeah. microsoft had the the tablet pc some 11 12 years oh before did they the i already iPad. forget okay okay yeah see because no one used it no one could understand yeah. why would i <laughs> why would i need a, a pen on the screen i don't get it that but i i already have a mouse and i have a keyboard why would i use a pen right and microsoft completely failed to to convey to them why it might be a good idea apple basically produced a a a product that it was compared to the tablet pc inferior in any way because you couldn't do a whole lot the tablet pc was a real pc you could do word processing and spreadsheets and databases and whatever you want on the ipad was basically for entertainment consumption right? Nothing else. It didn't have a keyboard, didn't have freaking anything, but it had a touch screen. It was easy to consume TV series and whatnot else. And they communicated this idea that, hey, this is a small thing that you can buy and you can just use it whenever, whenever you're on the fly and you can watch your favorite movie again for the 35th time when you're flying and whatever, right? And people are like, yeah, that's a good idea. I, I wanted to do that because I hate flying without watching a movie or whatever it is, right? So, so then it was a success and that breakthrough, that was a breakthrough uh, and created a new type of market. Previous uh, attempts did not. I think there was the year before the first iPad, there was an Android iPad or Android tablets. Huh. No one remembers, right? Because yeah. they, they didn't communicate it the right way. And so it's, it's not really about being first. It's about creating the most value. 
And it's also not about being providing the objectively speaking better uh, better gadget Good. either. Yeah. Right. It's it's about fitting it to what consumers value, right? And making it making it a, something that they can understand why they value. When, um, when people are listening to you, or actually, let me frame it this way. When, when some people are trying to think about the, the economy, they hear the word Keynesian economics and they hear the words Austrian economics. Would you be able to give maybe a few sentences on how they differ just for people who are brand new to these concepts? Because I, for years I heard Keynesian economics and I, I always kind of knew that it was like a type of economics that I didn't really um, maybe agree with, but I didn't really know why. Could you just compare the two just so people could maybe understand that if that's new to them? Yeah, there, there's a, a lot that is different. So uh, Keynesian economics is very much what is taught in, in macroeconomics courses today. So it's it's about the, the big issues and unemployment and interest rate and things like that. Uh, it's disconnected with any individual action, really, and what businesses do or anything like that. It's, it's about the politics, really, political economy. Austrian economics is bottom-up, so it's about the action and then looking at what 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 are the structures that are caused by people acting and interacting in certain ways? And the method is completely different. The assumptions are completely different. So Keynes's theory, in a sense, started as a critique of economics. Because when, we, when we've talked now, when we talked about money, when we talked about entrepreneurship and things like that, it's, it's all about really comes down to, well, you provide something into the economy and you get paid in money and that's your purchasing power. Right? So you have to supply in order to, to demand. Demand is constituted by your supply. I mean, you, yeah, you can, you can take a loan and whatever else, but that's only based on the promise that you can pay it off with your future labor. So you've already used your future labor in a sense, right? Keynes was opposed to that idea because he wanted to uh, liberate government to do a whole lot more than they could, and to put it very bluntly, right? So he, he was under the impression or used on the assumption that, well, the market doesn't work. It's, it's going to crash repeatedly. If you just let people be, it's going to have all these wild swings up and down and, and things are going to go down the tubes. And well, then it's obvious that someone needs to step in and fix this thing. So his idea was that <clears throat> the government as sort of a, well, I don't know, a police officer in, in, in the market or something like that would step in. And when the economy is going way too too well and it's, it, you have high growth, and we're still using these terms that it's, it's overheating, right? Uh, so we're producing way too much value. Well, when you put it in those terms, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense anymore, right? Uh, so then governments should step in and tax the economy to just make sure it doesn't overheat, and then keep those funds because then when it crashes and it always will, then the government should step in and spend to make sure that, that we don't hit rock bottom. Instead, we can sort of dampen the fall. So it would smooth out these cycles. Well, if you think about it, the, if the economy is really us acting and interacting, why is it that we would overheat in our value productions? What does that even mean? I haven't been able to figure out how to explain that. That oh no, I'm so well off now that oof, I'm gonna just gonna stop everything and I'm gonna lay down and die, or or I'm producing so much value and making people's lives so much better now that I should this, slow down. This can't go. Yeah, yeah this yeah. I should slow down and, and and people are gonna kill themselves because they have such lead such good lives now. Or, or I don't know what could happen really. I don't know what that means. It's not about overusing resources because it's the other way around, right? You're producing value, so you're using less and less resources compared to the value produced. So it's not about that. And there's also nothing saying that, oh, suddenly everybody will just go, whoops, things are going down. I'm going to sell off everything and I'm going to stop producing. Everybody's going to stop producing. There are no opportunities anymore. So the economy just goes through a meltdown. That also doesn't seem right, right? That's... Why would this happen naturally? Yeah, when, when you suddenly have a, a lot of people selling off, others might follow, but obviously that's also an opportunity, right? Because whoever has cash can buy cheap resources and start businesses and make a killing. 
So it should stop pretty soon. Unless, of course, the purchasing power of the money you have on hand is um, watered down and it's inflated, so you don't really have the resource anymore if you hold the, the money on hand. So there you go. If, if, if there's no saving, then there might not be a, there might be a problem. But in, in a sound economy, there, there would be a lot of saving because the, the money would be deflationary, right? Valuable, in, yeah. Yeah, and in, in, in any money where you don't have a, a currency that is manipulated like ours, where they constantly create a whole lot more just to fund government, basically, um, well, then you would see prices fall consistently. And we all know this, because if we think about what is going on in the economy, well, companies are competing by cutting costs, trying to undercut each other. Well, that's falling prices, right? Entrepreneurs are trying to innovate, create new, better things constantly to comp compete or outcompete whoever is producing right now. Okay, so we should get better product at lower prices. We're not. And that's, that's because the, the purchasing power of the money is, is falling rapidly, right? <clears throat> but normally, if that was not the case, well, obviously, if I would hold on to my money, I would get more later, which means I would make much wiser purchasing decisions. I wouldn't be stressed out and forced to make a purchase now because in a year, I would only have 90% of what I have now, right? Instead, I would make the purchases I need, which is a much better signal to the entrepreneurs too, that you're doing something that is valuable because I'm actually you... parting with my money. And if you layer in technology to your explanation there, which you are alluding to, that the entrepreneurs leverage technology to even lower prices even further, you know, it feels like prices should be falling for all of the reasons. So yeah, thank, I never really clearly thought about the Keynesian way for like top down. And I'm sure you've said this a million times. So you're going to think, why didn't you think about it this way? But one is a top down approach to economics. One is the bottom up. And I really love that type of analysis or way to, to look at the two different, uh, you know, approaches. I just look at the Austrian method as bottom up as like, that's the way it is. Like, that's just like not Austrian economics to me. That's just like, oh, like now I really understand how the economy works like this is how the economy works it's a bunch of people acting trying to exchange value in return they get purchasing power prices are uh exchange ratios as you've mentioned you know the, the most common good the most saleable good becomes money in the in the economy like all these things just seem like pretty normal and natural where do you think last question because i, I want to kind of wrap up to honor your time but where do you think we're headed with an inflationary type monetary system now with technology now really forcing deflation I mean, uh, Jeff Booth has a really great book on the price of tomorrow where he really highlights these two kind of opposing forces. I'm sure you've given this some thought. Where does this go? Where do you think we're headed the next three, five, 10 years if you were to get the magical crystal ball out? What, what, what do you think happens? Because I feel like it's two plates just going at it and one of them has to kind of snap. Yeah, I wish I had the crystal ball. I mean, that would yeah, be you awesome. don't. Yeah, I was hoping you had it too, Perry. Yeah, I was hoping you had it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think the the problem we're seeing right now is that, well, because the economy is so manipulated and so distorted, we get a lot of in, in innovations and investments in the wrong places. Yeah, so we yeah, get yeah. in we get innovations and investments where consumers aren't really expected to value the outcome as much as in other places, but they're either over-regulated or, or they're, they have protect, protected monopolies or whatever it might be, but the entrepreneurs can't go there. And, and, and because of those costs, they go somewhere else. I mean, part of the whole software is eating the world thing is that, well, hardware is much easier to tax and control regardless mm. of what kind of hardware it is, right? So... Software is sort of finding a way out of this this um, uh, regulatory yeah. burden. Yeah. <clears throat> so that, yeah. that's, it's easier to solve problems with just adding software than to actually doing things right. Because mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. the market doesn't really work well. Um, then, we're, of course, we're seeing people buying a lot of stuff that they don't need and they don't really want. And people are blaming the market and capitalism and whatever else. But I think this is really the same thing as we're seeing in hyperinflation. In hyperinflation, mm. people try to get rid of the money as soon as possible because tomorrow the prices will be much higher. So if I buy something now, doesn't matter what it is, 
I'll just go to Walmart and I grab the first hundred loaves of bread that I can find. And that's my paycheck. Then tomorrow, at least I can use the, the a loaf of bread to, to trade with someone for something else. Right. But my money would have plummeted in value. So I'll, I'm better off with this stuff. <clears throat> that, that's how, how people have behaved. So unconsciously, unconsciously, you think the population is in North America and, and throughout large parts of the world is perhaps already concluding, maybe not being conscious of it, already concluding, though, that the money doesn't hold its value and there's no need to hold on to it. Right. Uh, so so, the, so you buy a whole lot of stuff because things up, up, you, you know the prices will will rise, right? So you will get less for your money. So you might as well buy now. And that's sort of the purpose of it too. You want people to spend because you, they have this faulty idea that it's, it is spending that leads to jobs rather than jobs that lead to uh, the ability to spend. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, it's a faulty economic theory really in there. And it, any money you have in the bank, well, it's not... It's not money in the bank in the sense that it's safe, right? Because it's losing value. Every damn day it's losing value. It doesn't matter what interest rate you have on that money, which forces a lot of people also into making risky investments. So people go into uh, the, the stock market and, and, and put all of their retirement funds in some, some index fund or some high-risk fund somewhere because just holding on to the money, well, that's not going to that's not going to work because the purchasing yeah. power is going to be gone, right? So you're forcing people to part with the purchasing power that they have acquired by selling their labor. So, Jeez. I mean, that's a, a tax on, on people to begin with uh, because they just get, they can buy less and less and it forces them to work for much longer and forces them to make investments that they wouldn't make otherwise. And of course, this creates more jobs in Wall Street and stuff like that too. But um, so, so that's, that's also a reason for, for the whole mortgage crisis and all that stuff that mm-hmm. when they make up mm-hmm. new, new fancy ways to make investments seem less risky, right? Cause then, oops, you get all these retirement funds and they invest in billions of dollars. So everything is in this sense, very screwed up because people aren't really buying stuff because they think this would make a whole, a great difference in my, my life. No, they, they're, they're buying a, a, a TV that is a bunch of inches bigger than the previous one that still works because, well, they, they, they can't hold on to the money anyway. Right? Mm-hmm. It, it, so, so the calculation everybody's making is different. I don't think they're thinking that, ooh, I think the, the money will, will be worth so much less in a year. No, you're right. Yeah, prices, yeah. <laughs> they don't do yeah, this yeah. consciously, but no. but they realize that since prices go up and everything there's a greater urgency to spend than otherwise would be the case. And imagine if they could put money in the mattress like people could before, and it would be worth more later. Well, then of course you wouldn't spend on unnecessary things. You would be much more frugal. You would economize and you would spend where it matters. So people would be richer and people would be much more independent with a sound currency. That's a great place to leave it. Uh, thank you uh, for this. Your book how, is is titled "How to Think About the Economy," and I know you you said once or twice there that you know you're 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 just taking other old concepts that have existed and putting it together, but you've done it in a beautiful way. So I don't want you to downplay this because the book that you've put together I really think has the potential to anyone who has a little bit of interest in economics really give some of the foundation that is necessary to understand the world around them in a much better way. It's been a great help to me. And I think by this point, I had read a whole bunch of books, but you just condensed it really nicely. So uh, thing, and if for anyone listening about, uh, about the book, um, I, I think, is it available as a PDF that you can just grab or you can buy the book yeah. off Amazon? It's, a, yeah, it's, it's free. <clears throat> it's free to download. So you just yeah, go to mises.org slash primer. And you can download. Yeah. Okay. There. So we'll link to this in the show notes of this episode. We'll link to that as well, um, so that anyone listening to this can go to the show notes of this particular episode, and uh, and get that. And uh, yeah, Pear, uh, thank you so much. If someone did want to um, go somewhere else or to to find you online, is there a place you would refer them, or is it just to go to the book? What what, what would you like to share? Well, I mean, <clears throat> it depends on what they what they're looking for, but I'm very active on Twitter, so. 
what is your Twitter handle? to find me? Yeah. It's my name. So it's at Per Byland. So it's very at easy. Per Byland. So P-E-R-B-Y-L-U-N-D. We'll also That's link it. to your Twitter handle. So and other, okay, other so. than that, it's my, it's my website, which is perbyland.com. So okay. it's also easy. Awesome. Okay. Awesome. Per, thank you for this. Uh, thank you for sharing all this stuff. Um, I'm sure you're busy. So for taking the time to do this and share this with um, on this podcast with our audience, I really appreciate it. So, uh, you know, you have friends here. If we can ever do anything for you in return, please just say the word. Thank you. I appreciate that. Hey, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed that episode of the podcast. If you want to grab Pear's book, we will have a link in the show notes of this episode, How to Think About the Economy. And if you want to come out to the event on Saturday, February 11th, you want to check it out, you can see all the details at yourlifeyourtermsevent.com. It's going to be at the International Center right close to the Toronto airport. You can see all the agenda on that website and you can grab yourself a ticket there. That's yourlifeyourtermsevent.com. That's it for this episode. Until next time, your life, your terms.